I pray that it would be worshipful even, that in our hearts we would respond to these truths, uh, cherishing you and amazed by your wisdom and your grace and the way that you've honored us, making us in your image just, just out of free mercy, not because we did anything good or bad, but because you are kind and gracious and that you planned to honor us in your son and take us to be adopted sons in him. Thank you, God, for this grace. I, I pray that you would help the saints in this room, as I know their bodies are weary, their minds are weary. I pray that you would help them to persevere and to uh, learn and be edified through this last hour of instruction today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Image of God and dichotomy. Um, those go together. They both are part of biblical anthropology, a biblical view of man. So here's question number nine. Explain using biblical categories your understanding of the image of God in man. And I have on your notes the ACBC standards of doctrine. Uh, did you know that ACBC had a doctrinal statement? It's, it's a resource you can use when you're actually taking your exam. I'll let you read that on your own time. I want to start by talking about the honor of being made in God's image. There is no higher honor or blessing that God could have given man in creation than to make us in his image. And when he did that, he gave us a dignity and a glory that's unsurpassed by anything else in all creation. There's nothing else God made in creation that he's called his image. This comes, of course, from Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then the next verse, Genesis 1:27, erupts in a poem of praise. What God did was so great. It's like the, the story of creation becomes a musical. It, it can't just keep narrating the story in prose. There's, there's lyrics. It's poetry. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, so in the previous days of creation, God is, is creating like plants, and they're supposed to multiply according to their kind, and animals, and they're supposed to multiply according to their kind, and then God makes man and says, this is a kind of creature that is like me, is going to bear my likeness. So the first implication of this, I think, the most simple one is that you cannot understand who you are except entirely in reference to God. If you're not thinking of yourself, if you're not thinking of other people, radically with reference to who you are in relation to God, then you are going to be way off base. This is the first and most foundational thing the Bible says about us, that we are made in God's image. So here's another couple of implications of this high honor. Every person has inherent dignity and is worthy of honor. 1 Peter 2.17 says, honor everyone. You think everyone? Everyone. Why honor everyone? Because there is a sense in which everyone is worthy of honor. Why? Because everyone is made in God's image and he is worthy of honor. James 3, 9 and 10 even says that with our speech, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not be so. 
Uh, Genesis 9 establishes this precedent of honoring people because they bear God's image. Genesis 9, God said, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So each person has this intrinsic dignity as God's image, but... You should know this this high dignity also entails a a high responsibility. It implies we are to give all we are to God. His image on us shows we are rightfully his. Uh, You think about like the movie uh, Toy Story and on the bottom of one of the toys, it has the name Andy. Okay, that belongs to Andy. All right. God made us in his image. The implication is we belong to God. He has the right to do whatever he wants with us. We are to live for his purposes. And, and actually, Jesus taught this, this was an implication of the image of God in man. Do you remember this? Someone came up to trap Jesus or, or to try and make him unpopular in front of other people because people don't like paying taxes. And so they brought to Jesus a coin. And, and no, they, they said, Jesus, should we pay taxes? It's right for us to do that. And Jesus said, bring me a coin. And they brought him a coin, and he said, whose, whose image is on this? Whose likeness is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And so he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. And give to God what is God's. What is he saying? The thing that bears the image of Caesar, give it to him. Your, your taxes. What bears the image of God, give to him. What is that? You, your very self. It's an implication of the inner uh, image of God in us. Now, next, here's the real heart of the question at hand. What does this mean? The meaning of being made in God's image. Well, simply put, it means God made man to show the world what God is like. Now, actually, the Old Testament says quite a bit about images of God's. And, you know, what is the Old Testament talking about most of the time that it talks about things that are images of gods? Idols, carved statues, right? And when God uh, forbade Israel, told them they, they can't do that, he used language that resonates with Genesis 1. He said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in creation to bow down to it and that that not just for other gods is that don't even try and do that for me to use in worship as pointing to me okay why not well in part god had already made for himself in creation things that were his image and likeness was himself dead statues cannot point to what god really is like dead statues can't speak and bless and love and judge and relate and hear and see but you know what can you And all the people around you, God made us to show what he is like in the world. This is amazing. Like, so the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. But not like human beings do. That things in creation that that are incredible displays of God's glory actually pale in comparison to the way that human beings declare God's glory. Big mountain ranges. Yeah, that glorifies God, but you don't look at those if you want to look at where's the likeness of God in creation. You look at people. And this truth was proved by God 2,000 years ago when God personally entered his creation 
and revealed his glory to the fullest possible extent as part of his creation. He didn't come as a mountain range. He came as a man. Because, because that is how he could most fully display the image of his glory on the earth. God, you can think about this, it's amazing. God, when he made us in his image, he, he was making human nature suitable for the incarnation of his son, suitable for his son to, 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 to take on that human nature in a way that would fully reveal the glory of who he was more than anything else in creation could. Now, here's another little line that I've heard some use to explain what it means to be made in God's image. It means God made man to resemble and represent him in the world. If you want to use that, that's another good one. But um, to go deeper and even, even press into those, those two R words, we could ask, what are the various aspects of the image of God in man? And uh, the previous version, someone asked me, do you just say the same thing every year? About this? I try and make it better every year. If you were here in a previous lecture, this would be the basic outline. You get new and improved, okay? I used to say the aspects of the image of God was the structural aspect, man's capacities, man's reason, his linguistic faculties, uh, spirituality, things like that. The ethical aspect or his moral aspect, man's character. And the functional aspect, man's calling, what, what God appointed man to do in the world as his, as his image. Now, uh, I've changed it because I think there's a better way to categorize it. That, that's more comprehensive of all the biblical data and that, that are categories that, that are more, uh, more actually biblical categories. And the exam question, do you remember the exam question at the top of this page? It says, explain using biblical categories your understanding of the image of God in man. All right, so if you want to you know, follow... Many in church history, like the Middle Ages, and say, well, the image of God in man is especially his rationality, the ways that he can reason that animals can't. All right, is the, is, can you show Bible verses to defend that? Is that a biblical category for how the Bible explains what the image of God in man is? I, I think that relates, but, but I think we can choose biblical categories that, more, that grab more of the biblical data, and it's wonderful. So here's what we're going to do instead. Being... Here's some underlines for you if you want to copy those on your notes. The meaning of being made in God's image. Reflections. We're made to reflect God's glory or his holy loving character. Representatives. We're made to represent and mediate God's holy loving rule and relationship. We're made to relate to God as his holy beloved children and another way to say those same ideas we are made to be his living portraits his priest kings on earth and his sons and all and all these these three aspects overlap and you'll see that as we get into it so so let's get into it here we go the first one reflections of god's glory he made us to resemble his holy loving character in creation an image is a visible representation of something or someone so, so you were made to look like God. Not in your physical appearance. Remember your children's catechism. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We're made to look like him in our characters. And, and resembling his character. Here are these two verses are ones you want to underline or circle. These are important verses for explaining the meaning of the image of God in man. 
Ephesians 4, that's, that comes at the end of the, the well-known put-off, put-on passage, talks about how our salvation in Christ is refurbishing or renewing the image of God in us. Ephesians 4.24, it uses language from Genesis 1. It says our new lives in Christ are created, new creation, after the likeness of God. And then it explains that. In true righteousness and holiness. So when you live in a holy and righteous way, you are fulfilling part of your purpose as the image of God. You're resembling his character. A similar verse is in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, uh, I'll read verse 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self. What, what about this new self that you've put on in Christ? It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As God changes our character in Christ, we become more like Christ. We become more godly. We are growing in the likeness of God. In, in how we show forth the image of God. Godliness, you know what godliness means? It means God-likeness. The likeness of God. Resembling his character is, is part of what it means that you were made to be his image bearer. In another way to say resemble his character is to say reflecting his glory. So, you know, maybe, maybe some people might read Genesis 1 and say, uh, people keep telling me that, that I was made for the glory of God. But when I read about how God made us, it doesn't say anything about the glory of God. It says God made man in his image. We were made to image God. Okay, that, that is the means by which God made us for his glory. Part of it at least. In, in the Bible, there is a close connection between the ideas of image and glory in Scripture. And I'll show you just a few verses. 1 Corinthians eleven seven says, Man is the image and glory of God. You see that? And then 2 Corinthians 3, 18. I also have this up on the screen. It says, we all, with unveiled face, we are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. When God made us in his image, it means he made us to reflect his glory. Here are other verses that, that talk... Um, you know, that connect the idea of glory and image. For time's sake, I won't talk about them. But, but I'll point out at least these in 2 Corinthians 4 about, about Christ. says he is the image of God. And, and so the, the, the glory of God is shining in his face. So this, this next point, um, this is how we connect the spread of God's glory to what God told man to do in the beginning and, and the Great Commission, what God told man to do in the beginning, the creation mandate, fill the earth. And, and then in the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. Well, how does that relate to living for being made for God's glory and being made in God's image? Think about this. God made man as his image bearers, little reflections of his glory. And then he said, y'all make more of yourselves. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So what he told them to do in the first command was essentially fill the earth with the image of God. Make more image bearers. 
And that was God's plan for how he was going to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And then after sin came into the world and messed up the way that we image God and reflect his glory, Jesus came to save us so that when people become disciples of Jesus and they start to obey his commands more and more, well, then the image of God is restored in them. They, they start to sh- reflect God's glory more and more brightly. And so as disciples of Jesus are made of all nations, that also, that's filling the earth with the image of God. And so his glory is, is starting to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. All right, now, now related to what I just said. God's commands show us how to reflect his glory and resemble his character. And this has, um, you know, practical counseling impact here. All of God's laws instruct us in how we're to live righteous and holy, good lives. So, so all of God's laws are really instructing us in how we can be the image of God. He is righteous. He is good. He is holy. And and some of his commands explicitly make this point. Like when God says, he doesn't just say, be holy. What does he say? Be holy as I am holy. Be holy in, in a way that reflects who I am, in a way that images me. Ephesians 5.1. It's a verse you can underline. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. Imitate God. And that, that is practically a command that says, image God. Uh, one theologian I've read has said, the imitation of God is the foundation of all ethics, all morality, all of his laws. They're giving us specifics of how we can reflect his character, bear his image. And, and after Ephesians 5 tells us, be imitators of God, it says especially how we do that is by walking in love. God loved you in making you his child. Christ loved you by giving himself for you. So you live as an imitator of God, as an image bearer of God, especially by walking in love. And you know what else scripture says? All God's commandments are summed up by the commands. Love. Love God with all you are and have and do. Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so love, if you connect these dots that, that, I've, that I've been putting on the table, if you start to connect them now, if lo- the commands of God show us how we can reflect his glory, resemble his character. All of God's laws are summed up by love. Well, that, that's because, what does scripture say? God, God is love. We love in a way that... that reflects his glory that's how we image god his commands give us the specifics of how we love like him now i don't want you to miss this implication of the the truth of these dots i just connected if the if this is true if i've connected the dots rightly then that means the first and greatest command of god which is what to love god that, that that is the first and greatest instruction for how we live as the image of God. It is, as your notes say, the greatest commandment shows us the greatest way we can reflect the character and glory of God. We are never more like God than when we are living to glorify love and delight in God. 
we're, think, we're never reflecting the glory of God the Father more than when we are loving His Son. We are never reflecting the character of God the Son more than when we are loving God the Father by, by the Spirit. In these verses in John 17 I just listed, that speaks of the love and the glory that the Father and Son have shared for all eternity. And so if we're going to image God on the earth, what do we need to be doing? We need to be doing what God has been doing for all eternity, loving and glorifying and delighting in God himself. It's amazing. Uh, Ed Welsh has put it this way. People are most similar to God when he is the object of their affection. People should delight in God as he does in himself. The essence of the image of God in man is that we rejoice in God's presence we love him above all else and we live for his glory and not our own. Because that is what God's eternal joy and life and goal in creation is within the Trinity. So, being, first, point one, being made in God's image means we're made to be reflections of his glory. Resembling his holy loving character in creation. Second, next, it also means... We were made to be representatives of God's rule and, and mediating his holy, loving rule and blessing to creation. This is a big part of how the image of God in man is explained in the Bible itself. Biblical categories, okay? Genesis 1.26, the whole verse says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, rule, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In some English translations, if you read verse 25, it says, let us make man in our image so that they will have dominion on the earth, over all that. And then two verses later in, in verse 28, God emphasizes this idea of, of dominion again. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over uh, everything on it. So, so God, God made man as the crown of his creation, and then it's like God crowned man as, as the rulers over his creation. That's because they were his image in his creation. And Psalm 8 celebrates this. What is man? You're mindful of him, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Now, here's something uh, neat. This corresponds to how the concept of image of God was understood in the wider ancient Near East, in, in the context of the book of Genesis. And, and there have been scholars who have said, you know what? In Genesis 1, when it says that God made man in his image, it's funny, that seems really important, but it doesn't really describe a whole lot of what that means in chapter 1. And so, and so some people say, well, maybe that's because it was kind of understood what that would mean in that culture and time. And so actually other nations around Israel in that time and place, they had an understanding of some people who were the image of God. And you know who they said was the image of God on earth? The king, the Pharaoh. What the Pharaoh was actually called like the living statue of such and such a God. In, in this time and place, it was, it was like the ruler of the people was this living embodiment of a God, the, the visible rep representative of that God through whom the God would rule the, 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 his, his territory. Okay, so, 
So there's the resonance, but here's the big shocker in Genesis. It's not just one person, the king or the Pharaoh, who, who is God's image and, and his representative ruler on earth. All people are God's image. And so all people, male and female, are given dominion by God to rule over his creation as his representatives. You, know, you can think also about um, like Daniel chapter 3 is an example of this. In the ancient Near East, sometimes kings would set up statues or images in a place that would represent their rule like, like King Nebuchadnezzar did. And people were supposed to fall down before it and acknowledge his rule in that place. God establishes images of himself all over the world to represent he is the ruler of this place, this world we live in. Okay, so man's rule and work on earth reflects God's rule and work on earth. And, God's, and God rules and works on earth through man's rule and work. And, and, and we can see this actually from the beginning. If we compare God's work in creation with the work that God gave to man to do in creation, to exercise dominion, to subdue it, to fill it, the, the, those, there's resonance there. The idea is that, that God, the ruler of the earth, has made man in his image, and they will rule on the earth in ways that reflect him. And God will care for and rule over the earth that he made in part through us as his image bearers, as our work. So actually, here's an implication of this. Um, These these verses on your handout, for time's sake, I'm not going to go through these. but, But if you trace this out, trace these connections, you'll see that man is commissioned to work after and like like God as they exercise dominion. This implication of the image of God, it, it actually gives great dignity to all the work we do on earth. When we, when we work, when we parent, when we clean, when we serve, when we create things, when we bring order to things, when we provide for other people, when we bring delight to other creatures on earth that, that's not connected to sin. This is all part of, of how we bear the image of God, that he rules and he blesses his creation. So, so this, if you understand this about the image of God, it, it like supercharges with dignity and honor even the most mundane um, aspects of our work on earth. It, and you can find joy in it then if you can connect it to being made in God's image. Now, to, to press the matter even deeper, um, we can say, Man's calling as God's image is to express or or even extend God's rule on the earth like kings is also to mediate God's blessing and presence on the earth like like priests. And these verses that, that I list on your handout here shows God's purpose for the people that he saves on earth is to make them kings and priests or to make them like royal priests or priests who are going to reign or rule with him. Exodus 19.6, God says to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2.9, he says to Christians, you are a royal priesthood. Revelation 5.10 says, you have made them a kingdom, the people God has saved. You've made them a kingdom, priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Those, those glorious offices, wow, we get to be like kings and, and priests for God. That is rooted in God's 
creational purpose for man when he made us as his image bearers. Okay, you've, you've seen the idea of how ruling or reigning is connected to being made as God's image already, the royalty piece. But, but what about this, this priestly nuance and what would that mean anyway? Okay, Genesis chapter 2. It zooms in on day six of creation when God made man, and it tells us more about how that went down. God planted a garden. He put man in the garden, and, and God told man in Genesis 2.15 to work and keep the garden. So it's like God gave man dominion in his garden. It's like he crowned him as the royal gardener. You exercise dominion here for me. But this charge that God gave Adam in verse 15, work and keep, the readers of Genesis would hear those commands and they would think, whoa, like the priests? Like the duties God gave to the priests? Because, do you know, the book of Genesis is part of a, a, a some of the Bible says a bigger book, not just the whole Bible, but the book of Moses. Do you know what it, the book of Moses is? The first five books of the Bible. So Moses wrote Genesis like at the same time that he wrote the other five. And so the readers of Genesis, they're, they're thinking about the tabernacle. They're thinking about Leviticus. They're thinking about numbers. They've got all of that. And these words, work and keep the commands to, to Adam in the garden, those two commands together never show up anywhere else in the book of Moses except in the commands God gives to the priests, what they're supposed to do in the tabernacle, in the holy place, in God's presence. And this is not some off-the-wall random connection. You might be thinking like, whoa, you're way off in the weeds. I thought we were talking about the image of God. Stay with me. This is not random because you know what else? The Garden of Eden, there are so many things about the Garden of Eden. Those details come up later in the tabernacle that the people of Israel built and the temple that the people of Israel built. So many details about what it's like, and there's a lot of details about what the tabernacle and the temple are like in the Bible, they resonate with what it was like in the Garden of Eden. Okay? We're supposed to understand the Garden of Eden. It's, it's like this holy place. It's this sacred tabernacle space. God's holy presence is dwelling with man. And, and so what happens after God constructs this holy place? like a tabernacle, the Garden of Eden, what does is, what is God then put in it? Okay, think about this too. Israel's not the only people in the ancient Near East that had temples, were they? <laughs> the pagan nation had temples. What would they put in the temple? An idol or an image of the God that was supposedly... Okay, so God builds this holy place and then he puts his image in it to represent his presence in this place and, and that he is here to bless the people who come to serve him in his, his holy place. He made man to be the, the, the representation of his, of his presence. And then he gave Adam these priest-like commands to carry out in his tabernacle-like garden. And, and so here's, here's, here's the payoff. Here's what I want you to see. This is part of God's intention to make us in his image it's, it's to, he was conferring on man these great offices. You are going to be like kings for me on earth. You're going to rule and you're going to be like priests for me on earth. Okay, well, what does that mean? What are priests, what are priests supposed to do? Well, what were they supposed to do? 
the Bible. They would serve God in his presence. They, they would be mediators between God and the rest of creation. They would mediate the, the, the blessing of God and in some sense the presence of God to others. They would lead others in creation in the worship of God. That they would spread the knowledge of God to others. That they would protect the holiness of this place so, so this continued to be a place suitable for holy fellowship with God. And all of that matters when you think about what it means God made us in his image is to rule over his creation in these kinds of priestly ways. What all of our work on earth to exercise dominion, whatever we do, we're all to do it all as, as holy service to God and in the holy presence of God and as worship to God. And in ways that would, that would mediate the blessing of God to the rest of creation. It's incredible. Now, finally, this is also incredible. But I think this one's easier to understand. So if you lost me on the priest bit, hop back on the train here. I think uh, you're going to get this one. The last angle we need to add. God made us to, to reflect, be his reflections, and be his representatives. But not to do that. Like independent of him while he's, while he's thinking, yeah, do these things for me, but I don't really want to have anything to do with you while you do that. No, to do it while we're in relationship with him and specifically relating to him as his sons. Relationship, I'm sorry for the typo on here. It's just a relationship to God as sons, receiving his love and blessing and relating to him as a father. Now, this, this also is, is understood from the book of Genesis. This is a biblical category that explains what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. This is not like, I really like the idea that we're sons of God. I'm going to put this in here, okay? This is from the Bible, from the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 5, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 5, why don't you? All right, so Genesis chapter 1 says, God made man in his, what? Image and his likeness image and likeness keep that in mind just a little bit later this is the first human genealogy but you know what it doesn't start with adam it starts with god 5 1 this is the book of the generations of adam when god created man he made him in the likeness of god male and female he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created now look at genesis 5 3 when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see that? When the Spirit says Seth is Adam's image and likeness, just a little bit after it told us we're made as God's image and likeness, do you think that's supposed to help us to understand what it means that we're made? Yeah, yeah it is. It means, in part, God made us to relate to him as sons. Now, the same truth is in the genealogy of Jesus that's found in Luke 3. I'm just going to read this to you. This is a genealogy that goes backwards in time to the beginning. I'll start with um, um, the third from Adam. It says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of... Wait. Adam was the first, right? Shouldn't the genealogy be over? No. It says, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whoa, how is Adam the son of God? It's because he's made in his image. And this is part of what being made in God's image means. Have you ever heard the phrase, um, 
that boy is the spitting image of his father. Yeah, yeah. Now, this also corresponds to how the concept image of God is understood in the ancient Near East. Uh, the Pharaoh or the, or the king was the image of God also in the sense he was taken to be the son of that God. It's like remnants of the truth about humanity, you know, trickled down to these other cultures, though they, they perverted it in very important ways. Now, also, this idea of sonship accords with the, the previous two aspects that we've talked about already, reflection and representation. Sons reflect the image of their father. And sons, if they have a royal father, will rule for him or on his behalf and, and inherit what is his. So, so th- these things overlap, fit together, and, and all of this theology sets us to see the man we were made in God's image ultimately to experience and enjoy the father, son, love, and fellowship that's always existed in God. That, that's the end of God's image in man. The, the, the end goal of God saving us in Christ. You know, God unites us to Christ, not only when we put our faith in him, not only so we can have our sins forgiven, but so we can gain a share in the special relationship of love that God has with his own son. So God would treat us like brothers of his beloved son. Romans 8, 29 and, and 30 says, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers. So, so God made man in his image to be... So, to, to be able to be lifted up alongside his only begotten son so we could call God our father together with his son, his son Jesus, who is called in the Bible the true image of God and the radiance of his glory. Now, now, especially when you see this, you should be able to say, now I know why there's no higher honor or blessing that God could have given man than to make man in his image if this is, if this is where it ends up that we get to have, that we get to enjoy with, with Christ, with his son, his fatherly love and, and holy fellowship with him. Now we gain this in union with Christ who is the image, the son of God. It, it, it's amazing that all of this, the scripture, also, the scripture in these categories, the scripture, these three categories we just talked about, the scripture talks about these things as results of our salvation. We become God's children in Christ. We call him Abba Father. We, we become, we will reign with Christ. We rule for God. We become priests for God in Christ. Um, we, we, we are going to reflect his image as perfectly as creatures can in Christ. And God laid the groundwork for being able to, to give us all of those blessings when he made us in his image. It's amazing. Now, more along those lines, just that, that traces out this idea through salvation history, how we receive all these blessings of the image of God in Christ. Again, I'm, I'm going to let you just have that for your, your notes to look at later. All right, this, so this is my summary. Any questions about what it means to be made in God's image before we move forward? All right, you're almost there.
You can do it 18 more minutes, 17 minutes. Okay, theology number 10. Provide a biblical description of the dichotomist view of mankind. This is a two-part question. If you, if you take the exam and you only answer one part of a two-part question, you will be asked to rewrite that question. I'm certain, certain of that. Here's second part. Describe it and then explain the counseling implications of this doctrine with regard to the inner and outer man. All right, so what is dichotomy? Well, here's what ACBC Standards of Doctrine says. You have that in your notes to consult. Essentially, it means man has two constituent aspects, a body, our outer man, and a soul, spirit, heart, mind, our inner man. Like Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, implying you have a body and a soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our, our body gets weak and dies, our inner self is being renewed day by day, our soul, spirit, heart, mind. Now, that's dichotomy, but, but as opposed to what? What are the views? Uh, materialism or naturalism on the one hand this is the secular view. Man has no soul, just only his body. So everything a man thinks or feels or desires or chooses or does is just all a function of bodily processes, physical, you know, brain activity, brain chemicals or some problem with that. Or it's, it's just all how a person is raised and, and their circumstances, their social environment. So either nature or nurture or some combination of both explains why man thinks and does everything he does. But, but, but not, there's not this inner man and a soul and a spirit that's the control center of a person, the seat of all his thoughts and desires and choices. That's materialism. Not, I'm saying that's wrong. Okay. Now, on the other side of dichotomy is what's called trichotomy. This is a view people get from the Bible. It's, it's a minority biblical view. It's not heresy or anything. Um, Man has three constituent aspects, body, and then soul, or mind, and spirit. So the difference is they would say, well, our soul and our spirit is, are two different things. And that's because there are a couple of verses in the Bible that you know, list soul and spirit in the same verse. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23 is one. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Say, ha, so our soul and our spirit are like distinct faculties or something now this is the minority view uh this is not the view that i have or the view that acbc expresses in their um doctrinal standards and here's why dichotomy is a better position distinct words don't necessarily have distinct reference for example the greatest commandment love god with all your heart soul mind and strength that's not necessarily saying that these are like four different distinct components of human nature. You've got a heart, and you've also got a soul beside that, and you've got a mind beside that, and you've got strength. Maybe that's your body. No, it's like different aspects of the same, you know, who you are in your inner man. Uh, different perspectives on that same faculty, your inner man. Also, and perhaps most importantly, soul and spirit are basically interchangeable terms in the scriptures. You can do word, word studies like BibleGateway.com and, and see that. 
Now, finally, though, I mean, if you're, if you're saying, no, I'm going to hold a trichotomy, that, that's fine, as long as you don't use that to support unbiblical positions about counseling, which it has been used in that way in the past. Namely, there's, there's people have bodies. If they have problems with their body, who do they need to go see? Doctor. And then people have spirits and souls. Are different. If they have a problem with their spirit, if they have a spiritual problem, who do they need to go see? People like us, pastor, counselor, who can lead them to God. But then if they have, if they have problems with their soul or their mind, mental problems, or, or a soul in Greek, the word is psukos, who do they need to go see? They need to go see a psychologist. Okay? So um, that's an unfortunate uh, bad fruit of this view of trichotomy. So if you hold to this view, just don't take it to that conclusion. Even, you know, even better, you'd, I would encourage you not, you know, be a dichotomist. Okay. As you understand this, man, though, is a unity, not a composite of parts. So dichotomy shouldn't be understood in a way that divides man into parts. Like, like your soul is half of you, or in your body is the other half of you. No, your, your body is called the outer self. Your body is you. And your soul is called the inner self. Your soul is you, your spirit is you. We, so, so along the same lines, we shouldn't understand dichotomy in a way that denigrates either one's soul or one's body as less than the true or essential person. What's that? That would be Gnosticism. They would say, who I am really is on the inside and my body is not essential to my personhood. Uh, the modern forms of this Gnosticism would be like transgenderism, I have a male body, but that's not my essential personhood. Who I am on the inside might be different than that. No, your body is you. Or, or even like abortion. Well, this is clearly a human body, but it's not a human person. No, uh, a living body is, is the person. Okay. Um, well, there are many other uh, you know, ter- terrible fruits of what happens when we view our, our body as less than the, the true you. Because we want to, we want to care for our heart and what's going on in our soul as well. Um, the the Bible speaks of both the body and the soul as the true person. And and further, man is a here's a big word for you, psychosomatic unity. Uh, psukos is the Greek word for soul. Soma is the Greek word for body. This is a, we are a soul body unity. You are an embodied soul. Or you are a besold body. It, it's better to see that the terms body, your outer man, and soul, spirit, heart, etc. It, it's just all referring to the whole person from different perspectives. Uh, here's a quote from a good theologian, um, Anthony Hokema, who says, Through the, the Bible does see man as a whole. It also recognizes the human being has two sides, physical body, non-physical soul. Man is one person though, who can, however, be looked at from two sides. However, when death entered the world, one of the horrible things about sin, the wages is death, and death does something terrible. It separates what God intended always to stay together, our outer selves and our inner selves. And death, death causes a spiritual death is a separation from God. Physical death is a separation of, of a fully integrated person, a separation of our body 
from our soul. And that this is called the intermediate state. When our souls are in paradise with the Lord and our bodies are rotting in the dust. Scripture, though, still talks about the body in the grave as the person. And paradoxically, and also the spirit in heaven as, as the person. Um, so, but, but still, the, the intermediate state does you know, demonstrate pretty definitively the reality of dichotomy. Now, the, these are verses that, that explain also dichotomy and the, and the intermediate state especially. But 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 teaches us how we should think about the intermediate state as Christians. Paul says, I would rather be away from this body and be at home with the Lord. Being with the Lord is even better than continuing to be like a fully integrated person, body and mind. But he says, I don't want to go be the Lord. I don't want to put off this body to go be with the Lord so that I will like stay, he says, naked. So that I will stay without a body. But I long to go be with the Lord so that I would be further clothed. So I would get a resurrection body one day. And, and this is God's plan. This, this separation of body and soul and death it will be resolved in the resurrection. God made us body and soul and he's going to redeem us body and soul in the resurrection. Now, important truths for counseling or, or you could say implications of this doctrine for counseling as your exam question put it. One, counseling is for ministers of the word. So again, trichotomy has been used to argue wrongly. Ministers of the word only handle spiritual problems, while problems with people's minds or souls should be handled by psychologists. Uh, That's a wrong conclusion. So that's one important implication of this doctrine. Two, counselors must understand the unity of the inner and outer man. The heart, what's happening in our inner man, can have a profound effect on our body. And bodily factors can influence our heart, influence our heart. But the heart is still the initiator of all moral actions. So let's go through those more slowly. The heart can have a profound effect on one's body. Sinful thinking and desiring and choosing can have adverse physical effects. Psalm 38.3 says, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. On the flip side, righteousness generally leads to greater bodily health, generally. For example, Proverbs 3 says, fear the Lord, turn away from evil, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. But there's not always a direct causative correspondence between this. For example, a person might be really stumbling in their outer man, their body, while their inner man is being renewed day by day. Or Job is another example where he was suffering greatly in his body, but that was not directly related to a problem that was happening in his inner man, in his heart. Okay, now on on the other direction, bodily factors can influence one's heart. I'm saying influence, I'm not saying control. For example, physical suffering influences the heart's deliberations and longing. If you don't sleep, if you're very tired, that will influence the deliberations of your heart so thus biblical counseling counselors must acknowledge the importance of caring for one's physical needs first kings 9 when when um uh the prophet elijah 
ran a long way after this big showdown on Mount Carmel. And he said, basically he said, God, kill me. What did God do? God gave him a meal. God had him go to sleep. And then God gave him another meal. And then God said, okay, here's what, uh, here's what you're going to do now for me. <laughs> so, so, you know, talking to people about not, not trying to practice medicine, not trying to be doctor, but it's, imp- it's important to just the, the caring for one's physical needs. Okay. Um, how are you getting sleep? Are you eating kind of okay? Are you exercising? Um, and at times, biblical counselors will need to work with physicians to address potential physical problems. Now, here's, here's a key paragraph that you can underline or circle or star. We should not think that some bodily influence or impairment is the cause of any moral action, such that a man is not morally culpable before God for his thoughts, desires, and actions. Physical variables may exacerbate or even occasion temptations to sin, but the body, including the brain, which is part of your body, never makes anyone sin in thought, desire, word, or deed. What we do comes from our heart. Mark 7, evil thoughts and evil deeds come up out of the heart. So the heart, what the Bible calls the heart, is the initiator of all moral action, which will always be represented or expressed in the body, the mediator of moral action. It's from Ed Welsh's uh, good book, Blame It on the Brain. And here's a picture in your notes also that explains this. What happens in your inner man, your mind or your heart, your thoughts, your beliefs, your attitudes, your desires, your values, your commitments, your choices, all of that... Uh, your, your cognition, your affections, your volition, all, all of that happens in your inner man. And that drives what you do with your body as mediated through the part of your body called the brain. And then what happens in, as you experience the world through your, you know, through your body and what's happening in your body affects also what you're thinking and believing, but, but not in a deterministic way way that um, it's the source of any sin or righteousness. Sin and righteousness always comes from the heart. Our bodies, including our brains, don't make us sin. They carry out the sin or righteousness that we desire in our hearts. Okay, so, that, so that's a fine line to walk. But, but you need to remember that balance. You can fall off you know, the ditch on both, on both sides there but god god made you body and soul in a way that the steering wheel of of all that you do will be the worship of your soul the meditation of your heart the the affections of your heart and mind what you're trusting in and and so therefore true change will only come as we grow in treasuring christ and trusting in christ here's a quote that explains the picture uh thirdly Biblical counseling will always, therefore, aim for the heart, not merely behavior modification or the removal of unpleasant feelings. And lastly, four counseling implications of dichotomy taken verbatim from Heath Lambert's Theology of Biblical Counseling. Perhaps this will be useful to you in your exam. 
Implications of dichotomy. Biblical counselors will address problems both physical and spiritual. Even if someone has a big problem physically, clearly they've got a disease, they're suffering. You know what? Their, their heart, their soul, their mind is still responding in some way to that suffering in faith. Or, so, so even when a person's biggest problems that you could see are clearly physical problems, there's still a place for biblical counseling to, to you know, what, what will, how will the heart respond in faith and in righteousness? Also, biblical counselors must utilize and cooperate with competent medical professionals as they counsel troubled people. Three, medical care, while important, is never sufficient to address the problems people have. What I just said, uh, biblical counselors must not practice medicine. We aim at the heart, but the heart is always the proper target. It's always at play.